Seattle's Morning News, and it's Tuesday, so we go to Washington, D.C., and Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter for the New York Times, David Farenthold. You have a, a new article out today about Project Veritas, where you found that it actually spun off some money for its founder. First of all, remind us what Project Veritas is and what made it so famous. So it's a nonprofit. It's a conservative group that's sort of known for doing sting videos. You know, they trick people and, and say they're somebody else and then record the, you know, usually liberals or journalists saying embarrassing or damaging things. Uh, you know, there's been a number of videos over the years, way back to one about the liberal group Acorn, I don't know, 10 years ago, right. uh, and other groups over the years. So they're a nonprofit. And one of the things nonprofits are not allowed to do is to give excessive benefits to their executives. And what they did, this group did, was they told uh, the IRS that in 2021 they had done that. They had given an an excessive benefit to James O'Keefe, who's the guy that founded them. Uh, And it turns out that what they did was they paid for Project Veritas staff to go down and help him and videotape him when he was starring in a production of Oklahoma as Curly the Singing Cowboy in 2021. (laughs) So they fessed up to the IRS and said they shouldn't have spent Project Veritas money on that and that he has paid them back. Okay. That doesn't sound like the kind of thing that's going to put you in prison. Uh, so, no, it, it's a no. What you're supposed to do in these situations is self-report to the IRS and then tell them you, you know, your executive has paid a penalty tax and he's paid the money back, and so no need for the IRS to come after you with something stronger like trying to shut you down. I see. Well, so so they admitted it. Well, what what does this tell us? Sloppy accounting. I mean, was he deliberately trying to cover up his performance of Curly? What's behind? That? <laughs> no, he wanted he wanted people to know, but he wanted. Oh, that's Curly. right. He wanted to know. They were down there to videotape him. And What's make, a great role behind I the mean, scenes videos? Yeah. Uh, so I, I think this was you know I don't know what happened on their end, uh, but it does seem like they are at least saying that you know they did this thing they shouldn't have done. You know, which is uh, maybe a hope to stop the IRS from coming after them, you know, and and sort of doing this accounting for them. Well, I guess liberals who were hoping you were going to take down James O'Keefe are going to be disappointed by this, David. <laughs> well, the, in this case, I didn't know anything other than report what he said about himself. OK, the latest thing that we're looking at now in terms of the whole Trump investigation is what the, the Justice Department might do. I guess there's some indication the January 6th committee might make a referral. There's now a special counsel uh, investigating his attempts to overturn the uh, the election. Uh, where is this headed, and does it all come to a, a crashing halt on January 3rd when the new Congress takes over? Well, I guess start with the congressional part of this. So I do think the January 6th committee is going to make what they call criminal referrals, and, and that sounds very official and, and serious. I mean, it, and it is in some way. You would definitely wouldn't want them to make a criminal referral about you, but it's basically just a recommendation. It's a letter. They're gonna, they, there's nothing more than that. Congress can't charge people with crimes. You know, they, and they can't, certainly can't charge double, Donald Trump with a crime. Uh, so, but they can write a letter to the Justice Department and say, here are the people we think broke the law. You know, here's how we think they broke the law. And then, you know, you take it from there. So in the case of Trump, you know, obviously there's already this special counsel investigation going on that involves Trump's behavior after he lost the 2020 election, including January 6th. So you know, I don't think that there's going to be much that the Justice Department doesn't already know about Donald Trump and what he did in that period. But maybe they'll tell them something they didn't know. It's more important for the January 6th committee to sort of put itself on the record and say, you know, this is the how bad we think things got. These are the people we think broke the law. Mm-hmm. And I do think now that they've talked about this possibility, they can't not do this because then people will say, well, look, they investigated for a whole year or two years and didn't find any part of anybody broke the law. Yeah. So given that the last election seems to have occurred without any well, I don't know whether there's actual fraud but there have been there certainly have been no widespread accusations of fraud even from right. uh, republicans uh, can we 
Can we safely say that this controversy is, if not over, at least a lot less serious than it was? It does. I mean, I have to admit, you're right, that the, the predictions about 2022 about Republicans you know, trying to steal the election or not accepting the election when they lost, if it had been unfounded, except for one, Carrie Lake, the woman who lost the governor right. in Arizona, has been sort of fa- waging a lonely crusade to say that she won. Right. Um, but but I but read that I lawsuit. I read that lawsuit, or at least most of it. And she she is trying to bring trying to bring some serious charges here. They're they're you know, they're bringing in data and statistics. It's not like it's just a bunch of QAnon conspiracies. I mean, they've apparently done some yes. research and they got some numbers in there. So it's it, it doesn't sound, seem at all as crazy as 2020. I think she does have I mean, I don't know if her numbers mean anything, but she does have it does seem to be a more sort of numbers based case than what Trump made, which in 2020 was just like, well, I must have won. So, yeah, if the results say I lost then they're wrong. Uh, I don't think we can really say that the threat to democracy is passed, especially because we don't know what's going to happen with Trump. You know, Trump is the one that created this threat. I mean, or at least sort of, you know, raise the level of threat by many times until he is, you know, has his next election and it either wins or loses. I don't think we really know that the sort of true threat we're under. If he runs in 2024 and actually becomes the nominee, you know, I'm sure he would do the same thing again if he lost. And then it would be a whole nother stress test for the for the country. On another matter. Well, related matter. Can you explain the Twitter files that's got the uh, Internet all lit up? What are they? What's in them? Has have you as a member of the mainstream media been suppressing the information? What is it? Well, to the degree that I understand this, this is so Elon Musk, now that he's taken over Twitter, has become sort of a right wing troll more than he used to be. I mean, we're talking about prosecuting Anthony Fauci yesterday. I don't know if this is some sort of clever business strategy to bring conservatives back on the platform or if this is just a you know midlife crisis. I don't know what's going on with Elon. But one of the things he's done is release these things that were internal Twitter files before he took the company over about Hunter Biden, the president's son, uh, and what Twitter said or did in 2020 and supposedly to suppress information about Hunter Biden, you know, where, you know, to, to stories about Hunter Biden were posted by various news outlets to not let them get as much traction on Twitter. You know, I don't think I've seen, I haven't read everything, but I don't think there's been anything in there where you go, oh, well, it's a conspiracy or the, you know, the media is involved. Twitter's a private company and they had to create content standards they believed were like not letting misinformation spread. So, you know, maybe there's some decisions they made that were wrong, but it's not indicative of some larger controversy. We wrote a lot of stories about Hunter Biden. We're, right. we're still working on stories about Hunter Biden. People know about Hunter Biden. You know, the idea that somehow, you know, the election could have turned or, you know, there's some broad conspiracy to keep people from knowing about Hunter Biden's laptop, I think is not true. So there's nothing in the files, as far as you know, that the New York Times hasn't already ferreted out. Not that I know of. I mean, you and I talked about this a couple of different times. To me, the, the key thing about Hunter Biden is not what Hunter Biden did. It's what Joe Biden did. If right. anybody found anything saying that Joe Biden, when he was vice president, when he was president, took some action, used his power to help his son. That's a huge scandal. I don't think we've seen any any evidence of that. I mean, in fact, yeah. in fact, it seems like it's the opposite. We've seen a lot of evidence that Joe Biden knows how troubled Hunter Biden is and did not ever take him seriously as a business partner or co-conspirator or anything like that. Right. And if Joe Biden turned out to be neck deep in this, you'd want to cover it, wouldn't you? Of course. Yeah, of yeah, course. Okay, I mean, that's, I it, it, that's the that's the link that everybody's looked for and hasn't found is, you know, Hunter Biden, yes, definitely shouldn't be president. But does Joe, did Joe Biden do anything as VP or president that, you know, helped his son that, you know, stepped over a line? Nobody's everybody's looked for that and nobody's found it.
David Farenthold from the New York Times. You can hear him every Tuesday right here in Seattle's Morning News, also part of the podcast, which goes up at 930. Oh, Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. What do you do if you don't have enough police officers or troopers to change the driving behavior in a state that has experienced a 20-year high in highway fatalities? You use data to put those resources where they can do the most good. And here's Chris. 670 people were killed on Washington's roads last year in 602 crashes. That was a 20-year high, and the numbers are not going down. Through October, we're on pace to break that record this year. There were 580 fatal crashes in the first 10 months of this year. So how do you improve that? How do you stop the impaired driving, the distracted driving, the aggressive driving, and the other behaviors that lead to those fatal crashes? And how do you do that at a time when there's so few officers and troopers on the job? Washington State Patrol Sergeant Chelsea Hodgson says that's where the Hive programs were born. Hive stands for High Visibility Enforcement. You look at the crash data and you put as many resources in those spots as you can, stopping every violation you see. We have the data now. Why not use it to the best that we can to predict where these areas are going to be to try and stop it that way? Instead of like Billy Nelly of wherever you're working. The Hive Patrol was tested in Kitsap County, and the results were so promising that the state patrol took them statewide last month. The patrols consist of state troopers and any local police agencies that can join in, and they do it on the same weekends. It'd be a four to six hour window, and you saturate it with officers, and we stop any kind of collision causing thing, you know, falling too close, speed, impaired driving, distracted driving. All those things that lead to those awful, tragic incidents that we want to stop. During two weekends in November, Pierce County arrested 15 drunk drivers. Snohomish County took in five suspected drunks. Kitsap County, another three DUIs. There were a surprising number of seatbelt violations. Speeding was the most common violation. Uh, so there, and this was happening, you know, similar results across the state. Now, I don't have all the numbers from across the state. I just focused on the ones that I could get. But the state patrol's Chris Loftus believes this is the best way to make our roads safer. Mm-hmm to be using data analytics to, to look at what are the best ways to mobilize our limited resources so that we have the biggest bang for the tax bucks. For Sergeant Hodgson, these patrols are about reminding all drivers that they all play a part in keeping our roads safe. We need everyone to work together on this and to make good choices behind the wheel, to choose to drive safely And even to obviously report when they see folks that are choosing not to drive safely. Now, some people will see these heavy emphasis patrols as just a way to generate revenue for the state. But Loftus says it really is about reducing fatalities. We care. We we want you to get home. We want your loved ones to get home. We want the strangers that you pass on the street to get home. And to do that, we've all got to slow down. We've all got to pay attention. Uh, we've, we've got to fasten our seatbelts, and we've got to uh, not drive in pair. Statewide Hive patrols return Saturday, and then in the final weekend of the year, the state patrol data says that those two weekends are some of the most dangerous of the year, so they're going to get out there and saturate it again and try to pull over all the different violations they can in the hopes of changing driver behavior. Great idea. And I hope it is a source of revenue, frankly. I can't think of anybody who should is more uh, responsible for the problems than the people who are driving unsafely, and if the money's coming out of their pockets, good. So why can't they go farther than that? Can't you use... I mean, I can't tell the number of times I've I've seen uh, caught on my dash cam people playing NASCAR, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have one of the newer models. I wish there was a model where when you see something, you just press a button and it automatically uploads to the state patrol somewhere. But uh, 
Wow. Until that happens, then I guess this is the best we can do. But why why can't you use drones? Why can't you use all the toll detectors out there, which clearly know whose license plate is driving on the roads we're not and a how fast they're going? State, well, because right there now- is no Second Amendment for cars, Colleen. <laughs> you want to be London? You, when you go on a public highway and you have, I, I just I can't believe the number of people who are dying each year. That's that's yeah. like two a day. Yeah. Yeah. In, it's, in, it's, in any other context, that would be like a national, and it's just in the state that'd be a disaster. And again, it's what we've seen coming out of the the pandemic, where our behavior has just gotten worse uh, for what for whatever reason. But the aggressive driving has really kind of gone through the roof, and it's and I think it's a direct result of what we've been talking about through the whole pandemic. The roads were so wide open, people got used to doing certain things, and now that the roads are full, they're still doing the same things, which doesn't and they're work. They're annoyed they can't because there's more people on the road. And so yeah, yeah but I've definitely it, seen it. You know, so it would take uh, some legislative changes to make those cameras available to you for those particular uh, outcomes. Right now, they can't be. Um, and so, but and why is that? Is it a It's the way they were written. It was like, legality? hey, we're doing it only doing, we're not collecting any data. We're just getting a license plate to say to collect a toll. There's because no, of the fears of a surveillance Exactly. <laughs> but, that's, that, but that's brought us 670 yeah. dead people. Well, let's look <laughs> up the data in London because remember I told you when I was there this yeah. summer, they on the highways every mile or two, they have cameras that check your speed. And I was asking the taxi driver about it. And he said, yeah, I mean, we don't see a lot of accidents. We don't see a lot of, you know, people breaking the law because there's cameras every two miles that are going to ticket you if you are going faster. So they've they've had to put in that much in order to stop people from that urge to speed or break the rules. Like if that's what you want on the roads... That's what it takes. And that's what, again, that will have to come from the legislature prioritizing this kind of thing instead of other things that are maybe not necessary. Uh, like? Well, a lot of the things that they do in the Olympia are really not necessary. Mm. Uh, and certainly in transportation, we have a lot of needs, uh, and those don't generally get funded uh, as, as they should be, as uh, legislators look to do with money with other things. But, yeah, I mean, it may take us to that if that's what the, what the kind of roads, you, the kind of state you want to live in. But, yeah, something's got to be done. I mean, we're going to break a 20-year high second year in a row, most likely this year, for traffic deaths, people mm. not coming home. 670 last year. Year 580 through October of this year. It's a huge number. Seattle's morning news. Let's talk about a new approach to teaching American history. You've heard about the New York Times 1619 Project. It was a series of articles that reframed American history by beginning with the year 1619, the year that the first African slaves arrived in America. And it set off warnings from conservative groups about wokeness taking over in academia. There are people who see it as an attempt to undermine patriotism, plant the seeds of socialism. There's a long list of allegations. But there's only one elementary school in Washington that's actually teaching the 1619 curriculum. It's a charter school in Tukwila, Impact Puget Sound Elementary. Okay. I want you to turn and talk about what do you think it was that made Benin so powerful? I sat in on teacher Anne-Marie Rutz, fifth grade class, where the history of America begins with the history of the African kingdom of Benin and the royal family of Idia, Benin's warrior queen. All right, so those bronze masks and the bronze heads that were made by, that her son had their craftspeople make to keep her achievements and ceremonial power alive. Okay. She does not. Now, many of these were taken by the British, 
during an invasion in 1897. Now, why? Why would the British people take these and display them in museums? When I learned American history, we definitely did not start with the Kingdom of Benin. We started with the Kingdom of England, which is obviously important. But that only explains where most of the white people came from. The 1619 curriculum gives the same historical respect to the countries where most of the black people came from. Anne-Marie's fifth graders learn that just as England was an established kingdom, so was Benin. And just as the British immigrants brought elements of their culture to America, so did the people who came from Benin. Teacher Anne-Marie Rutt is a big believer in this approach because she thinks it's preparing students for the world they live in. I think I'm preparing them for the rest of their lives. This is history that they don't know. We haven't been taught. It's not something that's normally taught in grade schools. It's usually something special that they have to get in high school or usually college. It's going to be a special class. But this is the history of the world. And so I'm preparing them for being better educated about the world around them, the people around them, the history of where many of my students come from. And in fact, we learned that if Africa is the cradle of of uh, humanity, then we're all from there. We all originated from there, all humans, all human history. And so it's something that these students have never heard before. And so it's really a unique way of, of showing them who they are and where they come from. So today's lesson was about uh, Benin and the history of the, the empire there. And you've gotten to the point where the British are going to take some of the... Um, some of the cultural artifacts of that mm-hmm. empire. What, is it, what does that teach them? I think that teaches them that history is fragile. That the, why, why do we not know about this? Well, because it was taken. It was taken from them. And we don't hear about this because it was who writes the history. It's the people who still remain. And if the Benin Empire was gone and it was taken and many of these things were taken by the British and they're displaying them in their museums in the United Kingdom, then we're not hearing about it from the people of Benin and from the descendants of this, the empire. And so it's history that kind of got lost because of it was almost taken from them. And eventually you'll pivot to the issue of slavery. How will you introduce that? We have another unit coming up that also helps to get there. But I think we introduce it by saying that these were people who, you know, they had their tribes, they had their way of life. And these people who were seemingly better equipped or farther ahead in their um, evolution, that they came and saw these people that they felt we're not as good as them and not as advanced as them and that, oh, we can take them from here and that will be fine and they'll be fine um, and it's not anything that we don't need to leave them as they are. They'll be happier when we take them away. They'll be better off. Mm-hmm. And I think we start with that it's, it wasn't right and that it wasn't okay and it's not okay to take people from where they are and from their culture and from their life and move them somewhere else just because they're people that you think aren't as good as you. Yeah. So there's a moral lesson there, but then they have to deal with the fact that they are in a nation that either did this itself or was established by nations like the uh, British who did those things. So how do you guide them into understanding uh, the role of their nation in doing that? You mean the role of this nation in yeah. doing that? 
that we made that wasn't a good idea. Was we made mistakes. We thought we were better than others. We thought that being people who were white or people who uh, were more evolved or had a so-called better culture that we had the right but we don't we don't have that right and we need to teach them that it's not okay to think that other people are less than you just because their skin color is different and that yes we are different but we are all the same in many ways and we're all equal and we all deserve to be treated with respect and and you know and I reach out to them a lot too and I make sure that they understand I say you know I'm not you that your life experience is not mine and I want them to correct me if I'm wrong if I say something wrong if I do something that isn't right if I say something that they feel is not correct or that they feel is saying something negative I want them to tell me because I need to know too I'm learning as well we're full, we're bombarded all the time by messages about you know don't be racist, right? It's, it's a bad thing. Yeah. How does this uh, curriculum help with that, do you think? You, you, must, you must believe in it because you're doing this. So. I just think it opens up the world to them. It's, it's more that the world is more than just the history of Europe and the United States and North America. It's the history of Africa. It's the history of Asia. It's, it's the history of everything. And we've never taught that. I didn't learn that. It's not something I even know. I'm learning as I teach this because it's new information to me. I didn't even know there were African kingdoms. And why did I not know that? Because nobody taught that to me. Because that wasn't considered important. And my students need to know that the history of Africa is just as important. That they had just as much of a, of a deep and beautiful culture. And they had, you know, inventions and and currency and a writing system and and a class system and they had money and they traveled and they learned and they taught and we don't ever hear about that and that is such a, a we lack so much when we don't experience more than just Europe and North America I'm learning things that I didn't know. And that's why it's so exciting, because I'm excited about it. And so the kids get excited about it. And that's I why that. I, I could say, we were supposed to do writing. I never quite get there, because we have so much talking that we're doing and so much discussion that we're having and the excitement that they have of seeing themselves in this history that they haven't seen before. And seeing people with their skin color and, and the people who look and sound like their parents. And I just love seeing that excitement in their faces, feeling like their history is just as important. Anne-Marie Rudd, who teaches the 1619 curriculum at Impact Puget Sound Elementary, a charter school in South uh, Intuquilla, actually. More from my visit tomorrow. I will give you an interview with the manager of curriculum at the school, Amal Mohammed. That's incredible. As you were observing the students, how were they interacting they with the material? They were completely engaged. Right. They, it, was, it was part uh, you know, live teaching, part PowerPoint presentation. Were they aware they were getting something special and unique from other public school students? I don't think so. Nobody no. said, by the way, your parents were never taught this kind of history. Okay. This, is, this is just what the history class Which is. Which is great because it normalizes exactly. that this is your full history. Right. Oh, that's great, Dave. It's, uh, it was uh, quite interesting. And again, this is the only, I, I hear a lot about oh, my school district is teaching this. The, this is the only school, as far as I know, that's actually teaching this curriculum in the way it was designed. And they're they're part of a consortium of a group of schools around the country that are developing this curriculum as it goes along. They're up to the fifth grade now, and they'll you know be adding grades. Is it accessible? 
Where, anybody like, can get it. Anybody can, because that's great. Like, parents might want to supplement at home with this education. It's Yeah, it's it's free and uh, available to anybody. Super. And I love learning how gross you are at home oh, and your wife doesn't want to share a bathroom well, with you. Well, that's the way it goes. I, I have my own bathroom, too. I get it. Yeah. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. During the holidays, there are so many fun family activities to choose from, but they can break the bank. That's where Cairo News Radio's Nicole Jennings has found a solution. A local organization filled Seattle with some festive family fun that's entirely free. The Downtown Seattle Association set up a free pop-up ice rink for the weekend in Seattle's Occidental Square. Temporary ice rinks are a common sight in cities in December, but you normally have to pay for entrance, skate rental, or both. And for a family with a few kids, that can add up. Skating actually can be really inaccessible. And I know that around the holidays, you know, things can be a little bit tough. And it's really lovely that this is an event that you don't have to worry about. This skater noted getting to try this activity once for free could transform a child's life. I was little when I was introduced to ice skating and it totally changed everything for me. And so, you know, it gets more popular around the holidays, especially. And with it being a bit on the more inaccessible side with like buying gear and, you know, paying for skate time. A free way to introduce, you know, someone to this is really, it's really cool. West Dorn with the Downtown Seattle Association says they just wanted to do something nice for the community now that things are getting back to normal. We're all looking to get back together, trying to reconnect, and we just think this is a great opportunity to do so. And the association hoped to also boost sales for small businesses in the Pioneer Square neighborhood. We're just trying to bring everyone together, trying to bring some life back downtown, down to Occidental Square. So, yeah, anything can help. It's a gesture that boutique owner Chica Eustace appreciated as both a small business owner and an avid skater. I own a business in the neighborhood, Valoria, down on King Street, and I've been excited about this ice skating rink coming in. (laughs) I also love skating. She says they've never had a rink in this part of the city before. This is the first time I've seen a skating rink that feels just more festive and holiday-ish to me. (laughs) And I love that it's a family-oriented thing as a shop owner in the neighborhood. For this family visiting from Florida, it made for a fun change from 70-degree winter days. Isaiah was very excited about the idea of ice skating when I told him we were coming to Seattle. And he said, can we go see some snow and can we maybe go ice skating? I said, I can make the ice skating happen for sure. And the Downtown Seattle Association was also thoughtful about choosing a business to contract with. The business that sets up the rinks, All Year Sports Galaxy, is run by Vadim Slivchenko, a Ukrainian immigrant who played ice hockey on the Ukrainian men's team in the 2002 Winter Olympics. He says if you're looking for a new activity to enjoy with your loved ones, there's no better choice than ice skating. Skating brings people together and brings family and friends together, and that's just what we're here for. And it gives you an ultimate workout. You don't have to go to the gym. <laughs> Nicole Jennings, Cairo News Radio. 748 and now direct from the G and Ursula show, which starts at nine. Here is G Scott. Good morning. Do you have a favorite history teacher in uh, Mr. School? Oh, my goodness. Are you kidding me? Absolutely. Mr. Pagan. May he rest in peace. Uh, when he was my teacher, he was like 74 years old. Little, as a matter of fact, Dave, you guys have similar stature. Yeah. Same vibe. He, same vibe. Very smart white man. Dope. Super dope. First day of history class, I said, hey, Mr. Pagan, um, I, I got all the syllabus and everything like that. I, it doesn't, ha- we don't, what book do we get? He says, there's nothing for you in that book. We, I don't do history books. There's nothing in those history books that's real. Wow. He taught our class really? with no history book. 
because he didn't believe in them. Wow. Uh, and so what did he do different from what the history book would have done? Would have done. He started give us real, like real stuff that would happen. He would give us through like articles and and like it was when I started. I started reading Newsweek because of him. <laughs> I used to have to do abstracts for him. And so in each individual in the class, he would give you different things. So for an example, one of my classmates, uh, he's he'd ask him, "Where are you from? Where's your family from?" And all of that. Oh, okay. Oh, you from Ireland? This and that. Okay. I want you to do some stuff about. What's going on in Ireland? Really? Like, yes. And then he would present to the yeah, class, so you could all. No, learn, no well, he would present. He would present. Customized. He would present to the class on different topics, so we can understand the world history aspect. Mm-hmm. But his goal was to help us understand different cultures and how beautiful it was. Mm-hmm. He was the dopest teacher so ever. What did he do for you? What was what was your assignment? A lot of a lot of black history and mm-hmm. a, and a lot of a lot of times he'd be stuff, like stuff you hadn't read before stuff or? that well stuff that I never understood. Well, I remember yeah. one time he was like Scott, how many uh how many uh, slaves were in Africa? He said it to me. I said oh oh probably like a million. He said no zero. There's zero slaves. There was a lot of men and women. There's a lot of Africans that ended up uh, 12 million that ended up being having to come over here and they were enslaved. And once they were enslaved, these folks were carpenters and bricklayers and cabinet makers and tailors and butchers. He says, you have to understand and talked about the kings and queens before then. Mm -hmm. He says, this is why I can't stand. He would tell me I can't stand Black History Month. Black History Month, what is it? So it's 28 days out of the year, and we're going to sit here and tell you how Dr. Martin Luther King had a dream, right? We're going to be telling you the same stories. He says, why is it that most history books don't talk about the history of what happened in Africa, instead only focusing on what happened right at slavery and beyond? Right. Good point. So his whole thing was Scott you need to understand your history. You need to understand where you were, how you, where you've come from. And he says, no, it's a little tough now. It's going to be hard, but I don't want you just getting in the history book and just reading what somebody else has told you. What'd that do for you? It empowered me and it made history my absolute favorite topic. I never had a teacher. Like, first of all, he was Mr. Pagan, so he got to do whatever he wanted to. Like, we used to, he, he, yeah. He he was not politically correct either. He also had a way about him. Like when one time uh, the superintendent of the school, Colonel Merritt, came to the class and he came and opened up the door and he says, get out of my class. So he kicks the superintendent out of his class like you don't come without making an appointment first. He was that type of person. Anyways, what it did for me, it um, to this day, it has made me on this whole crusade that I think school curriculums needs to be changed. I think a lot of teachers need to be more empowered because really it's just a cookie cutter type of deal. And what it did for me is it really encouraged me to truly learn about not just black history, but just history itself. And so I've always been excited about history because of Mr. Pagan. I don't know if a teacher today, I mean, I think there are a lot of teachers just from my own experience, having a child in public school who do, you know, take time to do something supplementary to, you know, the typical textbook. But I feel like 
these days, you can't get away with oh, much no, no, without no. parents we, going, hey, I didn't want my kid learning well, I wasn't, that. I wasn't in military school. I wasn't, I'm, I wasn't in public school. I was in military right, school. So it, was a, it was a private school, yeah. no doubt about it. So public school? But still, I even don't think that today, even at a private school, a history teacher can get away with Mr. Pagan did. Well, you talked to Chris mm. Rakedall a lot, the superintendent of public instruction. Have yes, you ever asked him, like, what's your stance on changing history curriculum? No. Next no, time he's no. on, ask well, him they that. Have a, the thing is that they do it with the syllabus where they're trying to teach everybody the same stuff, assuming that there's one type of history you need to learn. But the but what engaged the kids in the school that I, that I visited in Tukwila the other day mm-hmm. was that they were teaching history that meant something to people from these various cultures. It's exactly what, what apparently your history teacher was doing, what, 30 years ago? It was, it, it was amazing. And so, again, he didn't – when he stood up in front of the class – he didn't he made us connect to the history. So he didn't just take something. There was no book, but he would say, oh, Colleen, your family's from here. Oh, your mom's dad, your grandparents are from there. That's great. And helping us understand why it was so easy to trace your lineage mm-hmm. and not mine. Oh, yeah. G with Ursula at 9 o'clock on Cairo News Radio. And closing arguments in the trial of Pierce County Sheriff Ed Troyer could be underway as soon as today. Let's get the update. Joining us now live in the studio, here is Cairo News Radio's Sam Campbell. So it looks like we are nearing the end of this trial. It's been going on for a couple weeks now, and the jury has heard from multiple witnesses at the center of the case, like Cedric Alzheimer, the newspaper carrier who Troyer accused of threatening him. Uh, officer Chad Lawless, the Tacoma police officer who was the one of the first on the scene and interviewed Troyer, and of course, most recently, Troyer himself. Uh, his testimony lasting from the end of last week and into this week. But something I hadn't seen until this week was the body camera uh, video from Officer Corey Ventura. He's Lawless's partner and was the officer to go over to Alzheimer's car and detain him. I want to play the first body camera clip that Troyer's defense attorneys played for the jury. It takes place after Troyer followed Alzheimer, had some words with him, and used his SUV to box him in until police arrived. Hey, keep your hands where you can see him. Hands on the steering wheel. Is that what you're coming over here for? Yeah, that's why we're coming over here, okay? I'm, I'm suspicious, huh? No, because she called saying that... I don't care what he called okay. for. He's following me. Okay, we'll figure out... Talk to him. I don't we will... need you to figure out nothing. I am working. We will figure out... I am out. working. Okay. I'm a black male in a white neighborhood, and I'm working. That has nothing to do with that. Yeah, it okay? does. No. He's following me. Okay. Huh? He's getting out of the way, okay? Okay, he's still following me. We will figure that out. It's... Yeah, get the so as you can hear, Alzheimer are pretty upset because like he said on the witness stand, he was delivering newspapers on his route when he noticed someone in a white SUV kept popping up following him. And according to Alzheimer, he approached Troyer, who was still in his car and asked, why are you following me? Are you a cop? And are you following me because I'm black? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Troyer tells dispatchers Alzheimer threatened to kill him. And so p- police start arriving in force. Uh, the, the size of the police response is, is disputed between the two sides, but ultimately it was a large police response. And the next clip you can hear Alzheimer getting frustrated at the number of cops there uh, because he says he's just doing his job. How many cops for a newspaper carrier? Oh, you like some bad. I swear to God, you guys are bad. Stop reaching for stuff, dude. I'm not reaching for 
Don't keep your hands on the steering wheel. My hands have to move off the steering wheel. Can I explain it? No, I don't need nothing to be explained to me. I'm being followed. Yeah. He called the cops. Congratulations. Yes. I'm coming to and from a house. Ooh, he's committing a crime. He's black. No one's he's seen. black. Okay. He's black. I'm going to explain. Oh, I'm going to explain. I'm my we... paper out. Okay, I understand that. I see all the papers in your car. Yeah, okay? congratulations. He just called saying that someone threatened his life. That's why we're here, okay? Yeah, I threatened his life because I walked up to him and asked him why he's talking. You can hear the defense cut the recording short there in the courtroom, but Alzheimer appeared to be saying exactly what he did on the witness stand, just that he approached Troyer's car, and he's in his own defense, you know, saying that, well, I just asked him questions. Uh, and here's the final clip of the body camera audio. Nothing. We don't mean nothing. Nothing, officer. What are we here for? What are we here for? Search my car. There's newspapers. The second time this happened to me. And that was when the officer was searching his, uh, you know, his his mm-hmm. possession for any weapons. Um, there is body camera footage of the interview between Ventura and Alzheimer. There is no body camera footage of the interview between Troyer and Officer Lawless. You know why not? That is because, uh, according to Officer Lawless, he left his body camera at the station before responding to the scene as it was charging and uploading footage to their uh, cloud-based service or whatever they use. Hmm. So I guess the question here is, is it a sin for a guy who I'm guessing has probably been followed before? Finally, just getting fed up with it happening. Again. That is what he says that he has been followed before. He testified mm-hmm. uh, last week that that he was used to being viewed with suspicion when he was doing his job. And according to Alzheimer, he felt a certain level of suspicion because he perceived that to be a white neighborhood. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So what's uh, what's next here? Is this wrapping up now? Or? Closing arguments are expected uh, today. That's according to the Pierce County uh, Court's own website. And I can't imagine that it will be too much longer as they have really gone through a lot of witnesses and recalled a fair amount of witnesses up. But the defense has rested its case. The prosecution, I believe, asked Troyer just a few sparing questions, but they do not have any more witnesses. Their final witness actually was Officer Lawless. That was last week. Uh, And this trial was extended because the defense uh, made a number of motions to bring more witnesses and recall some. Great. Sam Campbell. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.